Good evening to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. I hope all of you have had a good Friday. And for some of you, wherever you may live in the world, it's already the weekend. I know that kind of sounds maybe dull in a way or maybe not as exciting, but I have to remind myself that whenever I'm podcasting, yes, I know I have a lot of listeners in the United States, but I also have to be reminded of the fact that there are people who listen um, to these uh, podcasts in other parts of the world, and in some instances, they could already be a day ahead. So it's just one of those things that we have to be reminded of when it comes to uh, time, and that not everyone lives in the same time zone. Not everyone who listens into the podcasts are from the same nation. So given that I'm in 42 nations around the world, I have to be uh, remindful of the fact that uh, when people are listening to these uh, podcasts, they um, are all under uh, some form of different time zone. And even, the, even in the United States, you know, where I live, it's on East Coast time, but I also have to remember, too, that there are people listening under Central Standard Time, uh, Mountain Time, and uh, Pacific Coast Time. So time is of the essence, but uh, how we choose to make the most of our time, even when it comes to listening to the podcasts, is all up to us. So here we are again uh, discussing Michael Schumacher's The Wreck of the Carl D. Bradley, A True Story of Loss, Survival, and Rescue at Sea. When I was on the air uh, the last time uh, with you guys, we were um, talking about the, um, the funerals. We were talking about how um, people had felt betrayed. We talked about how Elmer Fleming and uh, Frank Mays, the Bradleys' two lone survivors, were now enduring a community who they felt had turned their backs on them. Why? Because for one, they were the only two survivors, and many in the community felt that all the other survive, all the other men who whom perished got snubbed. But that's not the way to me it works. Yes, the Board of Inquiry did make its decision that Captain Roland Bryan um, did uh, knowingly uh, take his ship out into a vessel, not to a vessel, ship out into the uh, waters in the middle of a storm and was therefore held liable for the uh, safety, not only of the, uh, not just so much for the safety of the uh, of his crew, but for the well-being of a ship that was already in need of um, significant repairs that were be that were supposed to have gone into effect um, after the shipping season ended. So we're dealing with a lot of uh, nuts and bolts that haven't been uh, firmly uh, put into their proper places. We are still dealing with uh, settlements that. Uh, the Bradley Transportation Company and Michigan Limestone are trying to offer to the families, but the families do not find those settlements uh, fair. They don't. They feel that whatever is being proposed to them isn't the best uh, viable option. Many in the community feel that the Bradley Transportation Company, as well as Michigan Limestone, are only looking after their own personal interests. Well, in this uh, podcast episode, we are going to learn about how a court settlement does get reached. So there is some good news right there. But we will also have to keep in mind that no matter how big or small the uh, money 
award settlement comes out to, and I, and I probably will more than likely say it again at some point during the podcast, let's just keep in mind that no matter how big or small the award itself is, whether it's a couple million dollars or um, somewhere close to a million dollars, money cannot bring a deceased loved one back. So our first uh, question for this uh, podcast episode is the following. In the months following the Bradley sinking, had other search attempts taken place to locate the ship's final resting spot below Lake Michigan? Yes. There had been more than one um, search attempt, but I, based upon um, the readings in this uh, book of uh, Michael Schumacher's, the one that I found interesting took place on April the 2nd of 1959, uh, five months almost five months after the Bradley had sunk, a plane had flown over north over northern Lake Michigan. This plane was a part of the uh, search and um, part of the search attempt to locate the vessel, but the plane had flown over northern Lake Michigan and found major wreckage debris from the Bradley washed ashore on Trout Island. Well, that's a good find right there. I don't know if it will bring true closure for the families, but finding some wreckage would be better than finding nothing. So what kind of wreckage was found? I mean, after all, wreckage itself is a vague term if you don't uh, define it properly. Well, when I think of um, wreckage from a ship, I sometimes I think of um, part of a ship washing ashore, or in some instances, maybe a life preserver or a life jacket. Well, ironically, uh, this airplane uh, did find evidence that ranged from life preservers, aka life jackets, to oars from the lifeboats. These are just some of the um, some of a handful of things that got washed ashore on Trout Island. While finding oars from the lifeboats to uh, the life preservers was a, a huge uh, step. The only thing, I wouldn't say it was so much it was missing, but it, but it just wasn't um, located. And on one hand, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but there was no evidence of human bodies, including shoes, that were not um, detected from this wreckage site. So it leads me to believe that the 15 men whose bodies were unaccounted for obviously um, perished um, the night the Bradley went down. Um, and of course, uh, the Sundew did find uh, bodies that were, um, you know, floating in the water. But of course, 15 men still remain unaccounted for. And, you know, we've already mentioned that their bodies um, were never found. So it's fair to say that they um, have perished underneath at the bottom of um, Lake Michigan's uh, surface. What's important about the uh, Pen Manta? Now, this is a ship that I don't think many people would have ever known about, but it's a unique um, ship. For one, I can tell you that it's it was not as it was nowhere close to it being as long as the uh, Carl D. Bradley. The Carl D. Bradley being 638 feet in length, the Pen Manta is only a 38 foot long vessel. But even a smaller size vessel 
can accomplish some unique things. Well, come late April, being April the 29th of 1959, this ship found her this ship went about making a huge discovery. Through the use of so through the use of a sonar device known as a sea scanner, the uh, Penmanta discovered a large object 360 feet below Lake Michigan's surface. So what was this large object, folks? It just so happens to be the Carl D. Bradley. Wow. It, think about it. The technology in 1959, it may not have been as sophisticated as what we know today or say, technology that would surface 25, 30 years after 1959. But this is a huge find. And to think that this was found now, that this discovery was made five months after the Bradley sinking. So, U.S. Steel Corporation is the one that makes this uh, major announcement. Now, come the fall of 1959, um, ML, or what is known as Michigan Limestone, they have what's called a, a periodical journal or a, a magazine that might be a company magazine that might be the equivalent of like a quarterly uh, subscription, I guess. But in the fall of 59, uh, Michigan Limestone um, published in its magazine about a recent discovery of the Bradley, being that of what the Penmanta had discovered. But what I found interesting here, and this will be of uh, this will be of continuous debate for some time to come. And what I mean by some time to come is I'm not talking so much in the present, but I have to um, uh, think of this as though we all of us were living sixty some years ago in the late 1950s, or just just a little over sixty years ago. That is, so. Per this magazine's finding, the magazine stated that the sonar tracing from the Penmanta confirmed that the Bradley had sunk in one piece versus breaking apart in two. Well, if I'm not mistaken, weren't there uh, weren't the uh, two survivors, or rather, I should say, didn't the two survivors of the Bradley, being Elmer Fleming and Frank Mays, didn't they? specifically state in their testimonies to the Board of Inquiry that, in fact, the Bradley had broken apart in two? Yes, they did. Of course, I wasn't alive in 1958, but based upon the readings that I did, not just for the for this uh, podcast series, but from when I first read the book, and looking at the cover of the book, do I personally believe that the Bradley broke apart in two? Yes. That's not to say that a ship can't go down in one piece, but it, too often we get this um, imagination in our minds that when a ship goes down, it just sinks peacefully. Uh, no, that's not the case. As a matter of fact, um, back in the late 1950s, as a matter of fact, I believe this was also in 1958, the same year the Bradley went down, uh, there was a movie based, upon, based off of Walter Lord's book, A Night to Remember, which was about the sinking of the Titanic. Well, for years, we had been told that the Titanic sank in one piece. Well, come 1985, that, that debate was put to rest. In other words, when Dr. Robert Ballard and his uh, crew uh, 
teamed up with a French, um, what do you call it, a French exploration team that went down into the um, trenches of the, um, of the, uh, de what we call it, the far depths of the North Atlantic Ocean in their Alvin submersibles. The big discovery was the boilers. But then, um, but then over time, they were able to eventually determine that the ship, in fact, had split in two. So we just have to be reminded that uh, as much as we sometimes want to believe that when a ship sinks, it was in one that the that the ship went down as one fully intact, but that's uh, not always uh, the case. Ships have a mind of their own in terms of how they break apart, how they um, go down, and once they hit the bottom, we have to then think to ourselves, how far apart are the bow and the stern from one another? So, you know, yes, the Panmanta's uh, discovery of the Carl D. Bradley was a huge find. However, the families of the lost Bradley crewmen are in complete opposition to what the Michigan Limestone um, Quarterly Magazine had stated in, per their findings. The families of the deceased Bradley crewmen are... Um, they, they truly believe that Michigan Limestone and Bradley Transportation Company, in fact, are refusing to accept responsibility for the ship's loss to the failure in offering a fair settlement. So, in other words, it's not so much the uh, failure on the company's part of reaching a fair settlement. It's just that they um, do not agree with um, the company's findings and that the ship went down and won. Did Michigan Limestone and Bradley Transportation Company offer a settlement proposal to families of lost and deceased crewmen? Yes, they did. Does anybody want to take a guess at what the settlement offer proposal was? Was it $500,000 being a half a million? Was it choice B, 660000 Or was it choice C, $1 million? The answer is choice B, $660,000. Well, did the families accept this offer? No, they didn't. The families and their attorneys rejected this offer. Now, I did the math here, folks. If you take 660000 divide that into 33, because 33 people, 33 men lost their lives, and, of course, you have to remember Captain Roland Bryan was a bachelor, and there were a couple of other men aboard the Bradley who were um, bachelors, but that's not, that's not to say that the um, men whom were single did have other immediate uh, family relatives or extended family relatives who could have vouched on their behalf and uh, have been entitled to a settlement um, in keeping that not just so much their loved ones, um, their deceased loved ones' spirit alive, but but part of a uh, proper um, agreement. So if you take six hundred sixty thousand, divide that into thirty-three, that would have been roughly twenty thousand dollars per each family being compensated. Now twenty thousand dollars in nineteen fifty-nine actually would have been a lot of money in terms of a uh, settlement per each family. We have to also remember, too, that the cost of living in 1959 was much, much different compared to today's world. 
course, as that old saying goes, everything's relevant to its uh, time in which, uh, in which uh, people of a generation are, um, are a part of in terms of the uh, overall greater society. The lawyers, on the other hand, are wanting something else. They want to go as far. In late July of 1959, there were attorneys on behalf of 10 families who were seeking $7 million or more in liability um, damages. That was more than 10 times versus the $660,000. Even $7 million, folks, back then was a lot of money. I mean, it still is today. But, you know, I still find it interesting to think that there was a time when people didn't sue each other like they do now. And I do believe that if anybody did sue someone back in the 1950s, for example, I, I think it would have been very, very unheard of to have sued someone for $10 million. Are Elmer Fleming and Frank Mays still employed with the Bradley Transportation Company? Yes and no. All right, well, which one of the two do you think is still employed with the Bradley Transportation Company? The answer is Elmer Fleming. He's still employed, but stays away from all the drama that's unfolding. And what do I mean by the drama, folks? The litigation, the pending litigation, with the lawsuits. Frank Mays, however, leaves Bradley Transportation Company, and he goes to work elsewhere in Rogers City at a warehouse facility. He may have left the Bradley Transportation Company, but just because he's working at a warehouse facility, it doesn't mean that um, there could still be uh, people at the facility who know of others whom work for Bradley Transportation Company. Um, Bradley Transportation Company is one of those, um, what do you call it, um, employment places where, you know, everyone knows each other. If you don't work there, you know somebody else who does. It's one of those places that can't be missed. It's one of those places that can never leave the radar. Frank Mays did seek an attorney, but sadly he got fired from the warehouse facility, which was linked to the Bradley Transportation Company. How about that, folks? That's a double-edged sword right there that sadly doesn't work to his advantage. He tried to meet with the president of the Michigan Limestone Company, but sadly got turned away. And as I mentioned before, and I'll say it again here, Elmer Fleming and Frank Mays, per their testimonies, had stated that the Bradley broke apart in two separate sections. Whereas Christian Bokema, whom we learned about from the previous podcast, being the president of Michigan Limestone, believed that the ship had not split. Is it fair to say that Christian Bokema, his interests are only confined to those of the upper levels within Bradley Transportation Company? Perhaps so. But Christian Bokema was not looking after Frank Mays, and it's probably fair to say that he really wasn't looking after Elmer Fleming either. Isn't that sad that people whom you thought you could trust, and now we're... We're only five, depending on what time of the year, 1959, you're looking at, we're um, about, if, if, if it's in July of 59, we're about eight months, eight months uh, past uh, the time that the Bradley had sunk. But here to think, prior to the sinking, everybody seemed to care about one another. Everybody seemed to look after each other, and 
now you've got this tragedy that's unfolded and you've never experienced anything like this and now all of a sudden people are turning against each other it just makes no sense and sometimes when people turn against each other they do it for the wrong reasons is it fair to say that maybe too much has been expected from society even as the 1950s are coming to an end and a new decade is up is upon us it's possible but the overall level of expectations, though, probably cannot be anywhere close to what we have in today's modern world where the world is changing constantly. But sometimes when a, when a um, terrible tragedy like this happens, knowing that 26 out of 35 men aboard the uh, Carl D. Bradley were from Rogers City, there's no way of avoiding the um, harsh realities and onset of what life will bring knowing that so many men did not come uh, did not return home to their loved ones was there another attempt to locate the Carl D Bradley in the summer of 1959 in other words did another um, search um, effort take place yes around late August a, a 175 173-foot vessel known as the Submarix, that's spelled S-U-B-M-A-R-E-X, Submarix, or Submarix, however you'd like to pronounce it. This uh, vessel was primarily used for surveying offshore oil drilling, but, but the good news is that this ship is also going to do uh, something else. Starting in uh, late um, August of 1959, uh, this ship will begin a 10-day journey beginning on August 21st, to locate the Bradley. The project was not funded by the uh, government. In this case, the U.S. Coast Guard did not fund it. As a matter of fact, the Coast Guard was unfortunately excluded. They wanted to be a part of it, but unfortunately they got excluded. The, um, the project itself was funded by Global Marine Exploration Company out of Los Angeles, California. And what do you know? With sonar... TV monitors to cameras, the Submarix locates the Carl D. Bradley. That's a second ship, folks, that has found the Bradley. However, the vessel is unable to perform further surveying and photography of the wreckage. Why is that? It's sadly due to uh, elements of Mother Nature. I tell you, no matter what time of of year it is folks whether it's spring summer fall winter mother nature has all kind of all kinds of trickery up her sleeve even when the weather seems decent above the water surface below water surface mother nature can still sh can still do her work no matter how big or small it may be so the surveying and photography that the um Sumerics wanted to do um, can't be done because of um, a powerful current setting in that reduces visibility. So the Submarics findings do support what the Penmanta had confirmed back in April, that the Bradley's hull was in one piece. And the findings alone helped determine that the Bradley glided and we're not talking like a hand glider, folks, that the Bradley glided to Lake Michigan's bottom 
and settled in a southwesterly position 90 degrees off the original course. Well, we know that the Bradley had, um, that her lights went out at about 5.30 when she um, sunk, and we know that um, she was about 12 miles southwest of Goal Island on the night of November 18, 1958. However, um, just because the Bradley may have gone down right at that spot, it doesn't mean that it was just confined to uh, one particular area. Well, I think it's fair to say that within a three months span, we've had two um, search um, mission attempts and they both have been successful. They might benefit one party, being Michigan Limestone and Bradley Transportation Company, but it doesn't benefit the families. It still hasn't brought any, there has not been any sense of um, closure While the Bradley officials were, in fact, pleased with the Submerics' findings, the families of the deceased crewmen felt nothing but betrayal from corporate officials whom they believed represented interests benefiting the powerful. Well, it's like that even in today's time. There are a lot of people who say that the politicians are more interested in the powerful than helping the people. And while, yes, uh, I think it is fair to say that those people who make those remarks do have some valid points, but then you have to ask yourself, who exactly is the powerful? Even that is vague onto itself. And it was, and it's fair to say that even in 1958, 1959, that um, interests that one has or a group of people have are only benefiting the powerful. But on one hand, if you ask me who might be the powerful, in this case, it would be the bigwigs who are on the higher end of the echelon scale of uh, Bradley Transportation and Michigan Limestone. Now, November 18, 1959, marks the one-year anniversary of the Bradley sinking. Memorial services in Rogers City, as well as uh, services in churches, are held, including published newspaper articles featuring remarks made by uh, some of the Bradley widows. So, obviously, this is... Um, the one-year anniversary is, uh, it's powerful because it's still fresh in people's minds. I don't believe it will go away for not only just the widows, but it will, I don't believe that it will go away for the, altogether for the greater community because everybody in Rogers City has been affected by this. Whether you work for the Bradley Transportation Company, Michigan Limestone, at the Port of Calcite, everyone is impacted by this, even if you don't. You're still bound to know of people who work at those places. You're still bound to know one of the uh, fam one or more of the families who lost their loved ones, including any one of the 15 uh, families whose um, whose fellow family members their bodies had never been uh, recovered. What's significant about Friday, uh, December 4th, 1959? Does anybody want to take a guess about what could possibly be significant about Friday, December 4th? Well, I can tell you, for one, that there was not another um, search effort, uh, not search effort, but a search um, mission to locate the ship. There is um, 
good news to report from the court perspective. U.S. Steel comes to a fair settlement compromise with families of deceased Bradley Crewman. The settlement figure came to $1,250,000. That, to me, is a very impressive uh, settlement figure considering the time that all of this took place. The settlement alone doesn't guarantee anything long-term or what we might call lifelong permanent financial security for victims' families, but its purpose focuses on providing temporary relief. Well, you have to remember, too, you know, whatever money um, came out of that settlement, that money, some of that money has to go to the lawyers who are representing these families. But you would hope that the bulk of the money does go to the families that are in need of it. After, the aftermath of the Bradley sinking did not bring closure to survivors Elmer Fleming and Frank Mays. And I could see how the aftermath of this uh, sinking and uh, knowing that a settlement was reached, while, uh, yes, for Elmer Fleming and Frank Mays, yes, they are happy to know that the families of the deceased crewmen are getting some form of uh, fair, proper compensation. But for these two men, sadly, um, you really have to uh, feel for these men. These men have made the ultimate sacrifice, and yet they come home not feeling valued anymore by the rest of Rogers City. So the aftermath of the Bradley sinking, as I said, didn't bring closure to either one of these men. And to make matters worse, uh, both men saw their marriages come apart. You know, back in the 1950s, it was very unheard of for, for a married couple to get divorced. Even my father told me back when he and my mother got married in 1972, one in ten marriages didn't make it. Of course, in today's time, it's one in two that don't, but maybe it's fair to say even in the 1950s that maybe one in ten didn't. But knowing that one of the reasons why Frank Mays and Elmer Fleming's marriages came apart was because of the trauma that these two men endured in the aftermath of the Bradley sinking. Uh, there again, we don't have such things as um, family therapists back then. We don't have, I mean, yes, there are psychiatrists, but I think it's fair to say that even in the 1950s, when a person went to see a psychiatrist, most people would have viewed them as someone who was nuts, nutty. It doesn't make it right, but that was probably the uh, stereotype for its time. So, sad enough for Frank Mays and Elmer Fleming, their marriages are coming apart. Frank Mays never sailed again after the Bradley went down. Elmer Fleming went back to fulfilling his duties as first mate. He even earned um, the rank of uh, master, or the position of master rank. But years after the Bradley sinking, his life had had drastically changed, but it was not for the better. And come 11 years later, in 1969, Elmer Fleming died from a heart attack. Maybe it's fair to say that Elmer Fleming, or sad to say rather, that he, might, he could have died from a broken heart, knowing that so many of his fellow brothers aboard the Carl D. Bradley died 
and yet he came home thinking that people would revere him as being one of two men to survive, but yet the opposite happened. And when the opposite happened, was life even worth living? I believe, I, I often wonder if Elmer Fleming and Frank Mays had both been treated better, then maybe uh, in the case of Elmer Fleming, he might have lived a bit longer. Who knows? I don't know. You know, you'd like to think maybe 20 years longer at best, but the bottom line is, is that when uh, tragedies like this happen and people don't welcome you back home, and they want to engage in finger pointing, engaging in uh, gossip, engaging in activities that are just totally inexcusable, unbecoming. It would make you as the survivor feel all the more uncomfortable and perhaps say to yourself, hey, is life worth living anymore? You know, if, if it's tough enough for Frank Mays and Elmer Fleming, um, a handful of the 56 children whom were impacted by the Bradley disaster will never be the same as they will struggle with relationships throughout the rest of their lives. It's tough enough to have lost your father, brother, uncle, cousin. You know, yes, you can have family to turn to, extended family, that is. You can have your uh, neighbors, your dear friends um, to turn to, uh, perhaps for support. But for some of these um, young fellows or children, regardless of whether they are close to 18 or much younger than 18, I could see how um, I could see how for many of them that um, having meaningful relationships was going to be a, a long-term challenge. As the 1950s drew to an end, would Rogers City and her people see better days ahead in the decade to follow? The next thing we're going to talk about right here, folks, is um, another, uh, we're going to talk about an event that happened not long after the Bradley went down, but it will involve Rogers City. And what I have to tell you all next is important because um, you know, Rogers City is one of those cities that, as I mentioned early on, it was the, the city or the town that time forgot. You know, Rogers City to some is seen as a wide spot in the road. Rogers City is one of those cities that where people come, say, for a weekend getaway and then go back um, to the hustle and bustle of, say, Detroit, Lansing, Flint, Grand Rapids. They go back to that style of life. People in Rogers City, it's a town of almost close to 5,000 people. They don't know any better. But it is fair to say that as of right now, that the town is still recovering. And it's going to take a long time for the people of this uh, unique community to make a full 100% recovery and go on with their lives as best as they can. I mean, I know they're trying to do that right now, but you have to ask yourself, what would happen if another tragedy occurred? It's bad enough if one has already happened. How do you recover from anything else that comes 
that doesn't rival what happened to the Bradley, but something else that could unfold that would um, that would lead to more un that would lead to further unraveling of unrest, despair, grief. So let's learn about uh, this other um, event that does impact Rogers City. So my question was, as the 1950s drew to an end, would Rogers City and her people see better days ahead in the decade to follow, being the 1960s? There's a twofold answer to this, yes and no. From an I had to take the yes part from an individual perspective because um, it turns out that not long after the Bradley went down, two of the Bradley widows went about remarrying. And then there were a fair number of uh, Bradley widows who um, had to find work in order to support their families. Despite all of this, for those uh, two Bradley widows who did remarry, as well as for many of the other widows who had to go about finding work to support their families, while they would have gone on, I know that they would have gone on with their lives as best as, as best as they could, the sinking of the ship, however, never went away 100%. As for part two, being the no side, nearly seven years after the Carl D. Bradley had sunk, another tragic misfortune happened along Great Lakes waters involving Rogers City. The Cedarville, a 588-foot vessel built by the Bradley Company the same year, 1926, when the Carl D. Bradley herself was built. So, you know, the Bradley was about 31 years old when she went down. Her, you know, her first uh, voyage was from the port of Calcite to Gary, Indiana, in, 19, in July of 1927. The uh, Cedarville, folks, is almost 40 years old. That's quite a long time for a ship to be, to be out on the waters, you know, ships have life expectancies, kind of like um, structures such as bridges. You know, bridges don't last forever. Bridges may have a lifespan of 30 or 40 years at best before they need to be repaired. But is it fair to say that even a ship that's almost 40 years old could possibly be seeing the end of its life expectancy? Perhaps so. So, come... The morning of May 7, 1965, at around 5 a.m., the Cedarville, commanded by Captain Martin Jopich and 35 crewmen, departed from the port of Calcite with 14,411 tons of open hearth limestone heading to Gary, Indiana. It sounds like this ship here, folks, is doing the same kinds of... Um, mass hauling like the Carl D. Bradley did. Remember when the Bradley went on her first voyage in 27? 16,000 some odd tons of cargo. And then not long after her second voyage, she broke a record where I believe it was somewhere close to 17,000. So it's fair to say that the, um, the Cedarville and the Bradley had a lot in common when it came to setting records with uh, hauling excessive tons of uh, cargo on their vessels. So like the late Carl D. Bradley, the Cedarville in its four decades of service had endured the effects of heavy labor to bumps and scrapes. 
the Cedarville was sailing along Lake Huron's waters. And remember, folks, Lake Huron borders Rogers City. So you have Lake Huron to the east and Lake, and Lake Michigan to the west. And those two lakes uh, border each other, and they are connected via the Straits of Mackinac. So this, uh, the Cedarville is sailing along Lake Huron's waters at a speed of 12.3 miles an hour. It's the boat's maximum speed. You know, to us, 12.3 miles doesn't seem like a, a fast um, pace. Of course, you know, when we're driving our cars on the interstate highways, to me, driving between 50 and 75 miles an hour seems like a lot. But let's keep in mind that uh, when a ship is moving at a speed of 12, just over 12 miles an hour, that's a big deal. I mean, that, that, is, that is pretty fast. What could the ship the uh, Cedarville be encountering that is going to cause her um, to have problems. Is it rain? Is it snow? Or is it fog? We're, th we're talking about the month of May here, folks. What do you think it could be? The answer is fog. But this isn't light fog, folks. This is fog that's thickening to where visibility stands at one mile. Did you hear that, folks? One mile. Can you really see much of anything at one mile with the fog as thick as it is? No. So my question to you all now is, what is Captain Martin Joppich going to do? Is he going to decrease his speed? Or is he going to... Be naive and maintain a speed of 12.3 miles per hour. Believe it or not, folks, he maintains a speed of 12.3 miles per hour. He passes uh, a ship, well, the um, Cedarville passes the Benson Ford in the thick fog. The captain, or rather I should say Captain Jopich, he prefers to rely on the sounds of other boats fog signals versus vision to know what's around the Cedarville. You know, it's one thing to have a variety of different um, instruments that will help um, better coordinate where you are on the water in terms of your space with other ships on the water. But isn't it a little bit um, naive to rely on other boats' fog signals versus vision to know what's around your ship? I would say it is. And exactly how many ships are nearby the Straits of Mackinac? In other words, are how many ships are nearby are in close somewhere in close proximity to the Cedarville but are around the Straits of Mackinac? Is it three ships? Is it five? Or is it eight? The answer is choice B. There are five ships. And these aren't dinky little uh, ships, folks. I mean, they, they may not all of them may be supersized freighters, but they are big enough to where if you don't detect them in enough time, something really, really bad can happen. Is it fair to say that the um, Cedarville is running blind? And what do I mean by running blind? It can't see anything ahead of it. 
Yeah, Captain Martin Jopich is playing with fire. You know, when I read this book and read about what what I'm going to be uh, telling you all, even though I've started it already, but what I read about him, he had been in, you know, he, he had encountered all kinds of weather. But then again, what captain hasn't on the Great Lakes? But Captain Jopich is ignorant. He's been through storms, or he's been through thick fog, rather, before in the past and never had any trouble. So he's under this assumption, well, that if I haven't had any trouble before in the past, why am I going to have trouble again? Well, three out of four times, you know, how do I say it? For every three times you're in thick fog, you might have eluded trouble. You may have gotten, gotten out of harm's way. But there's always going to be that one time when something does happen that will either make or break your ship, and not just your ship, but your crewmen as well, in terms of safety. The fog remains so thick, folks, to where the inevitable happens. What is the inevitable, folks? Well, for one, the Cedarville steers hard to the right. In other words, she has spotted a ship, and she... Captain Jopich orders the wheelsmen to steer the ship hard to the right with the hopes that they can avoid the collision. Kind of like, to some extent, with the Titanic, except the wheelsmen turn the wheel to the left, going hard to starboard to the left, thinking that they had missed the iceberg, only to, only to fail to realize that the worst part of the iceberg laid right at the bottom, being 80%. They could only have seen 20% of it up up, up at the uh, top, but what you don't realize is that 80%, in this case with the thickness of that iceberg, was right in the bottom, hidden in the North Atlantic. So in the case with the Cedarville, they see this ship, they think they have enough distance and separation to get past it. They don't. A collision occurs with a 423-foot Norwegian freighter known as the Top Dolls Fjord. This uh, Norwegian freighter, the Top, Top Dolls Fjord, was loaded with 1,800 tons of cargo. The Top Dolls Fjord plows the broadside, aka the side or hitting object from a sideways angle, into the Cedarville where it cut her hole on the port side. This is bad, folks. Now, the port side is the left side of, of the ship where it's facing the bow, being the front. Now, the port side's been hit, and it's been hit, folks, to where this, the seventh hatch has been damaged on the Cedarville. The hatch are the coverings that uh, secure the cargo below in place. The wreckage resulted in a deep gash running from the deck line to below water level. The Cedarville is pretty much beyond salvageable. It's like the equivalent of a car being totaled, where it's beyond um, repair. Caked is another word. Although Captain Jopich did order the engine to be completely shut down to dropping port anchor, as well as having crewmen lower lifeboats to the spar deck where the hatches are found. You would have th thought by now that maybe Captain Jopich was using a little bit more common sense. 
he decides to make an impulsive last-minute decision, resulting in something that will even be far worse than than uh, how do I say it? Than relying on um, ships' fogs, ships' um, what do you call it? Signals. If I can get the right terminology here, but worse than relying on other boats' fog signals, Captain Jopich, this uh, decision that he is that he will make. That's going to be ill, um, ill-fated uh, decision. Instead of abandoning ship to waiting for a rescue boat, he decides to ground the vessel at a beach near Mackinac City with the hopes that the ship can still be saved. Well, if I'm not mistaken, when a ship grounds, to me, that's when it it, um, it hits an object as a result of. Um, Grounding where you strike bottom or run completely aground. That's when you hit something that you might not have had complete control over. So he want, he is truly convinced that his ship is still um, can still be saved. So he decides to ground the vessel at a, ba- at a beach near Mackinac City with the hopes that his ship can still be saved. Weather, however, is still foggy to where visibility is poor. The ship is moving at about six miles an hour. It, however, the um, the straw that breaks the camel's back here is that the ship ends up listing. That is, it, it leans on its starboard side, that is, the right side of the ship facing the bow, where water pours onto the deck, and it comes at such a fast pace that it's a miracle that even one lifeboat alone gets launched, whereas the other got stuck in its cables only to get freed as crewmen at the same time went overboard. While the Cedarville is fighting for its life, while the Cedarville was fighting for its life, did the Cedarville survive, folks? No. The ship vanished into 102 feet of water. What is the Bradley Transportation Company now faced with, folks? This company is now faced with the stark realization that a second vessel was lost in less than a decade. Okay, we haven't even made it to seven full years yet. We're still at about six and a half years since the time the Bradley sank in November of 58. And now Bradley Transportation Company lost another of its uh, prized vessels. You know, to think at one time this company went a thousand days without any injury. November 18th, 1958 changed all that forever. Bradley Transport... uh, U.S. Steel reached uh, an agreement where they paid $1.25 million some odd dollars to the families of the deceased um, crewmen. It's probably fair to say that with the Cedarville, I'm sure that there was uh, a lawsuit with Bradley Transportation Company. But what I do know is that 25 out of the 35 men aboard the ship survive. So I did the math, the division rather, 71% of the crew survived. Uh, That's good news. That's, you know, you can't control how many people die. With the case of the Bradley, yes, we all would have hoped that more than, that 10 or more men would have survived. Only two men survived that um, tragic ordeal. So 71% 
survive, but there's bad news to report. Nine out of the ten men whom perish hailed from Rogers City, Michigan. And Rogers City had never fully recovered from the Bradley sinking, and I don't believe that they will fully recover from this one either. You know, Rogers City just can't seem to catch a break. They've tried so hard to move forward with the, the people of the community have tried so hard to move forward with their lives, but yet it's just not meant to be. Is this a city or, or a town that's been cursed? I wouldn't want to think that, but knowing that so many men from this town who have given their lives to being out on the waters have now been taken either by Lake Michigan's waters or Lake Huron's. Of course, in Gordon Lightfoot's song, The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald, he mentions about how Superior never gives up her dead, but I do believe it's fair to say that for all the other Great Lakes, Huron, Michigan, Erie, Ontario, they all too don't give up their dead. I'm not trying to be cute or fancy here, folks, but we're dealing with the elements of Mother Nature. Martin Jopich, I don't know what happened to him, but he, in my opinion, he should have been court-martialed for his... Um, ignorance. You know, it's one thing to be a captain of a ship, but if you don't respect Mother Nature, if you are playing with fire in, in fog, and you have been given repeated warnings to slow your speed down, wouldn't you do that? Not only for you, to protect, say, your well-being, but that of your crew? Of course, uh, Captain Roland Bryan died Yes, Elmer Fleming defended him left and right. And yes, there were people in the community who probably didn't like the fact that Elmer Fleming defended Roland Bryan. But I do believe that if Captain Roland Bryan was, in fact, the captain of this uh, ship, the Cedarville, something tells me maybe he would have had far more common sense than Martin than uh, Captain Jopich to, in going about slowing down the ship. Here is another example well, this is an, a good example here of being on the waters, where captains who make poor decisions, and the same could be said for Captain Edward J. Smith of the Titanic. He had numerous ice warnings on the night of April 14th, I believe, 1912, and he didn't heed the ice warnings. Warnings were um, administered here for um, the Cedarville, and yet they weren't taken lightly. So, man's arrogance, his ignorance, can be his own greatest, can be his greatest undoing. Yes, more men's lives were saved on the Cedarville than the Carl Bradley, but at what expense for the town of Rogers City? That's an expense that will never um, go away, because no matter how much money you gain out of a settlement, it still never brings back the loved ones who have perished, who made the ultimate sacrifice. Well, we've covered a lot of ground tonight, and thank you again, as always, for listening. Just keep in mind that no matter what sacrifices are made, there's not always a guarantee that someone will come home, or a, or a team of crewmen will come home, for that matter. But when dealing with Mother Nature, 
no matter how hard a crew tries to um, get by in terms of being sophisticated with technology, Mother Nature herself will always find a way to be one step ahead. I might say that again at some other point down the road in another podcast regarding the uh, this uh, book. But when I'm on the air again next with you all, we're going to learn about um, about other um, attempts to find the Carl D. Bradley and to prove, in fact, whether or not this ship did, in fact, split apart in two or if it sank in one piece. So we still have a lot more to cover but I can tell you that we're probably not too terribly far from the end. But we still have a lot of good stuff to look forward to learn about. After all, Frank Mays is still alive at this point. And by the time we get done wrapping, this, wrapping up this um, series, you all might be surprised to know just how long he lived. But if I tell you all that now then what would be the point in my even being back on the air again next time? Thank you again for listening as always, and I look forward to being back on the air. Uh, thank you uh, to all of my fellow 101 podcast listeners who go above and beyond to uh, listen, because you all are the ones that um, keep me going. Thank you again, and have a great weekend wherever you may live. Stay safe. <music>